1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it find that the love of God is living inside of them. Well, my message today is going to be very, very short, as I want to give the lion's share of our time to our guest, Will Dickerson, today. Um, when I asked Will the, what passage of scripture he would like to have read, he, he gave to me an unexpected answer. Typically, there are certain verses in, in the Bible that speak to the missionary's call, such as Romans 10 or, or the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. But Will chose Genesis 1 and 1 John 4. At first, I thought this was strange, but as I was reading these verses, I was reminded of something, and that is this. That, that all of God's word has God's mission in view. And we see this in the fact that Jesus, Jesus is our true missionary. He was sent by the Father to this world in order that we might live through him. He left his home in heaven and made his dwelling among us. And his message was his atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died for you, and he died for me. And now he calls each and every one of us to testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And this is exactly what, what Will and Julia are doing the, the love of God has manifested itself through them, and it is now being poured out to the people in Budapest, Hungary. With that being said, I want to welcome Will Dickerson forward as he's come to share with us a report of his work. 
Thank you. Hopefully this works. My, my children always make fun of me at how technologically incompetent I am. But if you can't hear me, just raise your hand and I'll talk louder. As, uh, as mentioned, Julie and I, we serve in Hungary. Uh, we're there with One Mission Society. I've been there since 1993, but Julie and I got married uh, two years ago and she, she joined me to 17. And both of us do a lot of different things in Hungary, but, but most of what we do, it goes back to the desire that Hungarians have to learn English. So they, this is something they want, and we, we can meet their, their need. Uh, for example, our team in Hungary, every summer since 1994, we've run evangelistic English camps in the summer. And then uh, to try to follow up with some of these young people during the school year, we have some English clubs. And Julia's been helping out with an English club in, in Budapest uh, every week. There, we've got another one up in the city of Vats. Uh, typically, she bakes lots of goodies and they devour them. <laughs> so this is kind of a practical uh, version of, of love. There's, there's weeks where she bakes something. She said, oh, this, this did not turn out the way I was supposed to. This is a disaster. This is terrible. I said, no. And she comes back with empty pans. They, they've been licking the crumbs and, and everything. She's also been helping out uh, at the church we go to. They, they have a mops program, you know, mothers and they call it a mama baba club, but new mothers. And they're trying to figure out how do you do this mother thing. And Julia just goes and tries to watch the young kids to give the mothers a chance to, to, to talk. Uh, we do a lot of entertaining in, in our apartment. Um, we meet with a group of adults. We, we kind of refer to it as our adult English club. We get together about once a month or so, and we have dinner together and just speaking, uh, spend the evening uh, speaking English, mostly speaking English. Sometimes they revert to Hungarian, but it's, it's just a time of fellowship and getting to know one another. Uh, I've done a lot of different things. The, the main thing I do, the one thing that takes up most of my time is I have a full-time teaching position. I teach English in what you would call a, a public high school. In, in Hungary, they call it a gymnasium. So I teach at this school. It's called St. Laszlo Gymnasium. Now, although most of what we do involves the English language, neither one of us wake up in the morning thinking that the high point of our day is going to be instructing our students finer points of, of English grammar. The reason that we are in Hungary is to make sure every Hungarian knows how to use the present perfect tense knows which phrasal verbs are separable and inseparable, and make sure they know how to construct a proper second conditional sentence. That's not what motivates us. Rather, we see English at, as a communication tool that allows us to build relationships and to share our faith with the people that God brings into our lives. So let me just give you a, a, a brief idea of how I do this in the classroom. Normally, I teach the same students 
all four or all five years that they study English. So during that time, I, I get to build a relationship with them. And I, this is one aspect of my job that I really, really enjoy. And they'll come in their freshman year, and I'll try to make a, a great effort to get to know them. What are their interests? What do they like? You know, what music do they listen to? Or in many cases, what instruments do they play? Uh, do they like sports? Which sports? What are their favorite teams? Do they participate in sports? What do they do in their free time? And then I go out and I try to find material outside the textbook that I can bring in related to their interests and hopefully in some way make their English lessons a little less tedious. As the students advance from ninth grade to twelfth grade, or in some cases from ninth grade to thirteenth grade, and as their knowledge of English improves, I then try to challenge them with increasingly difficult questions. And I'll move from questions that have concrete answers to questions that have more abstract answers. For example, when they're at a lower level, I might ask them to describe their best friend. And they can say, well, you know, he's five foot six and, you know, so many kilos and brown hair. But as they get older and their English improves, I'll say, can you define friendship for me? You can't measure friendship, right? You can't say it's this tall and this wide and that color. Um, instead of asking them what they might do in a particular situation, I'll ask them, how do you know what is right and wrong? Because, you know, many of them, they have a materialistic worldview. And if there's no God, if there's no lawgiver, it's very hard to come up with an objective way of saying this is, this is right and this is wrong. And I'll say, how do you know this is right? And so, well, I feel it. I'll say, well, what if I come into school one day and I, I didn't get breakfast and I'm really hungry and you didn't do your homework and I'm bigger and stronger than you? Is it okay if I eat you? <laughs> no. Well, why not? I felt good to me. So I, I make them try to think. <laughs> Given the fact that I teach in a post-communist, post-modern society or setting, it's, it's not surprising, right, that most of these kids come with a materialistic worldview. They seem to assume that the universe is composed, comprised of, of nothing but matter and energy. So at some point I'll ask them, when does a human become a human? And where did humans come from? You can probably guess the answer I'm given, right? We, we evolved. There's, there's this is struggle for life. And they'll say, well, sometime long, long ago before I was born, something happened. We don't know what. Maybe lightning hit some water and something was living. Right? And then many, 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 many years pass and Right, you have these fish swimming, and then many, many years later, the fish jumps out of the water, and then many, many, many years later, you have gorillas, and then many, 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 many years later, you have humans, and then many, many, many years later, at the, at the very top of the food chain, you have English teachers. <laughs> right, and, and the way you get from here to here is that the ones that are best at surviving and reproducing, they pass their DNA along, and, and the other ones get eliminated in the course of the competition. Now I, I want my students to learn how to think critically. I want them to learn how to try to build, uh, know how to build a logical argument. And so when they give me this scenario, I'll kind of push back and play the devil's advocate. And I'll say, well, 
That's true. Why is it that humans, and, and almost every other living species, we are comprised of male and female members? Because after all, if we live in a universe that's guided solely by the laws of natural selection, there's no reason for male and female to exist separately. After all, the criteria of natural selection are simply the abilities to survive and reproduce. Species that are best at doing that, they win. The other species lose. And single cell androgynous forms of life have shown a remarkable ability to survive and reproduce. In fact, in many ways, such organisms have an advantage in the struggle for life. An organism that can reproduce all by itself without the aid of a partner is much more efficient in this regard than one that requires male and female to get together and figure out what to do. And if you don't believe me, ask a teenager how difficult it is to find a suitable date on Friday night. <laughs> and while it's true that biologists and geneticists, given the benefit of 2020 hindsight, can explain the long-term benefits of a system that requires male and female to share their DNA, they can't explain how it happened in the first place. At least not without the help of, at minimum, some kind of intelligent designer. How and why separate and distinct female members of a species might have made their debut remains a mystery. Actually, some to this how did life begin? So I'll let my students think about these questions for a while and we'll go on to something else. Maybe we'll read Calvin and Hobbes or maybe we'll watch a film or something. Many of the students that I teach are in a special chemistry and biology program. And so these young men, they have access to resources and experts that could answer these questions if such questions could be answered on a purely scientific basis. Moreover, majority of the students go on to pursue careers in medicine, bioengineering, genetics, chemistry, uh, pharmacology, and other fields of science and engineering. And I've kept, touch, kept in touch with a good number of them, and yet nobody has ever come back to me with a scientific explanation of how life began or how male and female came about. I'll ask my students other questions, such as why is it that humans seem to have a conscience, an innate sense of morality? Why are humans so creative? Why do we put such a high value on various forms of artistic expression? Why do we have museums? Spiders and cows and snakes don't have museums. Why do humans have museums? How does this help us survive? Why is music so important to us? Why do humans have a sense of humor? You ever think about why do we laugh at the things we laugh at? Um, why do we display such a range of emotions? And many of these emotions seem to be, would seem to be detrimental to us in a struggle for survival. Eventually, usually in their fourth year, I'll ask my students the most difficult question of all. And that is, I ask them to give me a definition of love and to explain what it is. Maybe they should have been here this morning for the children's moment and then they, they would have gotten it. Now at first they think, ah, finally, an easy question. 
right? Because if you turn on the radio, most of pop music is, you know, I love you, I love you, yeah, 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 all you need is love and everything. And most of their literature that they read has something to do with love. And they start to think about it. And then they realize this is the most difficult and challenging question of all. And then the students say, you know, I, I, I can't even really explain love in my native language, much less in English. And so then we'll typically spend several lessons kind of together working through this. And they'll give you an answer, and I'll ask a question, and they'll give you another answer. And usually the students work their way to the conclusion that when you love someone, you put that person's needs and interests before your own. They also agree that the greatest example of love would be the sacrifice of one's own life to save someone else's. You might see this in, in a wartime. One soldier throwing his life or his body on a grenade to protect his colleagues or a fireman or somebody. Um, I would, I'll, I'll sometimes ask my students, you know, what would you do if you came home from school and you, you found your grandmother tied up and standing across the room was a terrorist with a bazooka pointed at her face? What would you do? And they, and they all say, I love my grandmother. Of course I would try to save her. I said, why? That doesn't make sense if we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? You are young, you're healthy, you're intelligent, your, your life is before you still need to pass along your DNA, right? Your grandmother, I mean, she's nice, she was a great cook, but she's old, she's going to die soon anyway. Why would you risk your life for that? And they, I love her, you know? My students will also tell me that love is something very, very good, and it's also something very, very important. In fact, they will say that love is so important that we cannot live without it. Love is a basic necessity for human life, and in certain ways it is important to our existence as, as oxygen, water, and food. Because if somebody truly believes that he or she is alone and unloved in this world, that person often ends up as the victim of suicide or ends up in a psychiatric institution. And that person's chances of passing along their DNA decrease significantly. My students say without doubt that we cannot survive unless we are loved and unless we love others. The person who is unloved, as I said, is much less likely to pass along his or her DNA in, in this competitive world. Of course, my students were not the first people in the world to recognize that humans cannot live without love. Poets and artists, they've been saying this for centuries. And now this fact is actually, this fact that we need to be loved is actually supported by science. Recent research in the area of psychology and sociology has shown that loneliness and weak social connections have the same negative impact on the human lifespan smoking 15 cigarettes a day. They've proven this now over several long studies. Even the Harvard Business Review has taken note of this fact. In September 2017, Harvard Business Review devoted several articles to the negative impact that loneliness has been shown to have in the workplace and on our national economy. But this raises the question, if love puts the needs and interests of others before its own, why would we ever 
need it if we evolved in a dog-dog world. Of course, it's not hard to see how we can benefit if others love us, but why would it be a basic condition of our existence? If love is self-sacrificing, why is it impossible to live without it? And this is where my students begin to really struggle to come up with some answers. And in the end, they usually say, you know, I can't explain it. After all, true love seems to be something that, that really is selfless. But selflessness does not make sense in a world that consists only of matter and energy. So where does love come from? And why do we need it? When my students come to the end of their senior year, I usually let them turn the tables on me for the last month or so. And I'll let them choose the topics we discuss and I'll let them ask questions of me. And inevitably, they turn around and ask me all the same questions I've been tormenting them with for four years. And so they say, well, how would you define love? And when this happens, I point them to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul provided what I think is probably the best and most famous definition of love. Right here, Paul said that love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not seek its own interest. It's not easily provoked. It does not keep a record of the times that it has been offended. Love does not rejoice when it sees unrighteousness. Rather, it grieves. And instead, it, enjoys, it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love sees the best in others. Love endures through every trial, and it never fails. In other words, love is more than some kind of nebulous feeling that comes and goes with the weather. It's, it's, love is not something that you fall into and then fall out of. It is a decision to put the needs and interests of others before your own. And, and in other words, true love really is very much akin to selflessness. Now, many would say that the opposite of love is hate. But on the basis of 1 Corinthians 13, I think a good case could be made that the opposite of love is actually selfishness. But if we evolve through the struggle for survival, shouldn't we be the most self-centered species on the planet? Shouldn't all of our skills and our instincts be honed for self-preservation? I've read arguments that somewhere along the line, humans developed what they call an altruistic gene. We became social animals. But I, I just find this really hard to imagine how this happened. Because after all, if you are altruistic, and I am not, I'm much more likely to live longer than you and pass along my DNA. And your altruistic gene is much more likely to be eliminated. My students, therefore, want to know if true, if, if true love is selfless, where does it come from? And why do we need it? Why can't we live without it? A materialistic worldview seems incapable of explaining not just the existence of such selflessness, but our need for it. Love makes no sense in a dog-eat-dog -dog world in which might makes right. So at this point, 
I direct my students to the, the text that was read earlier, to 1 John chapter 4. Here, John told us not just once, but twice, John said, God is love. And in Genesis, which we also read, we are told that we were created in the image of God. God said, let us make man in our own image. And so God, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, created us as male and female and said, go have kids. So the human family, therefore, in some way, was created in the image and the likeness of the Trinity. Now, normally, I avoid any attempt to fathom the depths of Trinitarian with my students. That's above my pay scale. However, I do point out that if it is true that God is love, and if it is true that a triune God created us in his image, we can see why we exist as male and female. This was not an accident. Right? This was planned. This is a reflection of love. We were created to be in relationships with one another and with the God who made us. Moreover, if God is love, if he created us in his image, it's not surprising that we need to be loved. We need to love others and we need them to love us. This is why we were created. This is the reason why we exist. Indeed, we could say that love, true love, is something like God's fingerprint on our life, right? Bank robbery happens. You try to figure, who did this? And the FBI comes in and finds fingerprints. You say, ah, that guy did it. I think love is like God's fingerprint. We know he was here because without God, there's, you can't explain this. Our uh, love and our need to be loved is evidence that he was here and he created us. It's evidence that we are more than a complex collection of molecules that was somehow assembled and refined through a struggle for survival. The mathematician, Blaise Pascal, he once argued that we were created with an infinite void in our souls, a void that can only be filled by the infinite creator who made us. Others have said it this way. Others have said God created us with a God-shaped hole in our souls that only his love can fill. One of the best-known verses in the Bible is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not die but have everlasting life. God loves us so much that he gave his very Son to sacrifice for our sins. God loves us so much that he took on our weak flesh. He endured humiliation, pain, suffering, and physical death so that he might ransom us from death. He laid down his life. He sacrificed his life so that we could get our lives back. And this, right, this is the greatest example of love that the world has ever seen. The Lord and creator of the universe sacrificed his son so that we could live. This is love, selflessly putting the needs and desires of others before your own, even at the cost of your own life. Now often when my students think of Christianity, 
They think of a set of rules that they must obey. You know, their ideas, God was up in heaven, and the first thing God did was he made a set of rules. Once he had this really cool set of rules, he said, now I need somebody to obey them, and he created people. Or they think Christianity is a, a set of procedures or rituals they must follow. If you do the right things in the right order, God has to let you into heaven. Or maybe they think Christianity is a set of doctrines that you must accept as true. But I try to make the case to them that if God is love, then the Christian faith is not a set of rules. It's not a set of procedures. It's not even a set of doctrines. If God is love, then the Christian faith is a relationship. It's a personal relationship with our Creator and Savior, and it's a relationship based on love. Now, this is not to say that doctrine and deeds are unimportant. They are, right? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Rather, it's simply to acknowledge that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, first and foremost, is an act of love. It's to accept the love of the one who made us, and then to return that love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I would love to tell you that I explain this to my students, and they all want to come forward and be baptized right there at that moment, but that doesn't happen. Um, for many of my students, as I said, they, they've grown up with a materialistic mindset, and so this is, this is very new to them. And, you know, sometimes they look at me like I'm, I'm an alien with three heads. So they need some time to process it. And then what's really, really important is they need to see how it works in, in action. And so we try to have many of these students to our, our home. Usually the seniors will have them at Christmas, and uh, we'll show them It's a Wonderful Life, and we'll give them lots of Christmas food, and we'll let them sit and talk. And then later in the spring, we, we invite them back. And, and uh, I, I think Julia's made more pizza during the last two years than probably the previous 50-some years of her life. <laughs> and the students love it. And they, they come and they, they look around and they look at our pictures and they, who are these people? And they, they have lots of questions about us, right? So how did you guys meet? Why did you come to Hungary? You know, and, and things like that. So anyway, I, that, that's the short version. That's, I tried to boil down what I do over four years into 20 minutes. So um, I'll leave it there. Is that